0: If you're listening now, you're listening to the amazing, colossal podcast of Gilbert Gottfried. And who are you?
1: <laughs> you
0: didn't identify yourself. Oh, I'm Ron Delsner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Goldie Hawn. Now try it again. With,
2: hey, I'm Ron. Hey, I'm Ron Delsener,
0: and you're listening to the amazing, colossal podcast of Gilbert Gottfried. Ron is signing off. Motherfucker. <laughs> Beautiful. Great, great.
2: Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast, I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a writer, producer, Oscar-nominated director, and Emmy-nominated actor, and one of the most appealing and versatile performers of his generation. You know him from hit TV shows like M.A.S.H., Law & Order, Seinfeld, Sports Night, Damages, The Sopranos, One Tree Hill, Family Guy, The Good Wife, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, the TV movies Gypsy and Barbarians at the Gate, and popular feature films such as Chilly Scenes of Winter, Shock to the System, The Mask, Traffic, We Bought a Zoo, as well as three films discussed at length on this very podcast, Crossing the Landsea, Local Hero, and National Lampoon's Animal House. He's also the director of the Oscar-nominated short by Courier, the writer-director of the well-received independent feature King of the Corner, co-starring Academy Award winners Rita Moreno and Eli Wallach. In a long and prolific career that started with a sudden epiphany way back in 1971, He shared the stage and screen with such icons as Michael Caine, Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Paul Schofield, James Garner, and Bette Midler, as well as former podcast guests Steve Buscemi, Tim Matheson, Andrea Martin, and Matthew Broderick. Hell. He's even worked with Brother Theodore, Yvonne DiCarlo, and Professor Erwin Corey. Please welcome to the show one of our favorite actors, and as far as we know, the only person to portray both Richard Nixon and Chico Marx. The charming and talented Peter Rieger. My God,
3: it sounds like I have a career. (laughs) Thanks for that introduction.
2: Unbelievable. Quite a run. You know, who knew? Almost 50 years. Good for you. and we didn't know we'd we'd have to make our studio wheelchair accessible. Well, I was I
3: was under the impression only people ambulatory challenged would get into this place. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me, and now I'm a cripple.
1: Yes, yes. Peter hurt his Achilles. Just uh, we'll yeah. fill in our for listeners. For those of you too.
3: who like the Achilles, it's a hell of a tendon.
2: Yeah. When when we were setting up the mics and everything. Uh, uh me, you, and Frank—we're all discussing our various injuries. <laughs> it sounds like we're, it sounds like we're in a Neil Simon
3: play. Yes, <laughs> going in style. <laughs> oh my God!
2: And we had on uh, John Amos. John Who Amos ripped his. Yeah, he
1: mantle. was here with a bad
3: Achilles.
2: <laughs> yeah, he warned me, but I didn't listen. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. So you guys figured out where you met? Yeah. Yes.
3: Yeah, my memory was that it was, it probably a good three, four years ago, At uh, it was a celebration for the National Lampoon
2: at the public library. And you told me a story I always remember, that you were making a film and you called up Eli Wallach and you said you'd be interested in him working in the movie.
3: I had met Eli through his son, Peter, in about 1973, 4, 5. Uh, Peter's girlfriend at the time, Karen Kay, was working in this improv company that I was in called War Babies. And, uh, and I would see Eli periodically. Anyway, 2003, I directed this feature, King of the Corner. And it was a part for the father. So I called up Eli. And, you know, he's just as gruff as can be. And he was 88 at the time. Mm-hmm. So I said, Eli, I got the money for the film. And uh, he and I said, I, you know, I'd love you to do it. And he said, well, who am I, the old Jew? <laughs> so I said, well, actually, the young Jew has been cast. <laughs> he said, I'm an actor. I can stretch. <laughs> I said, well, you ain't stretching for this one, buddy.
1: What a career. He's had Eli it. Wallach. It
3: was amazing. And at 88... We were having lunch on the set one day, and he looked at me, and he just out of nowhere, he said, I think I got 10 more years. Why? And I think he had 10 more years. Wow. Yeah. Just like that. Jeez. And he kept acting. Isn't that Cameron
1: Diaz picture of the holiday?
3: He's probably still acting somewhere. Somewhere. Let's hope. He was extraordinary that way. He, He is the real Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I mean, he's just been with everybody. And I, I, an extraordinary actor, great human being, and uh, an awful lot of fun. I introduced him. There's a um, what's the the film awards in the in January? National Film Board.
1: Oh oh, uh, the, D, the D W Griffith. No, uh, no no
3: no, it's not that. I think um, it's the National okay. Board of National Review. National Board of Review. Something yeah. like that. Anyway, yeah. uh, I was the MC this particular year, and I was going to introduce at one point Eli, who was going to give an award to Elmer Bernstein, who wrote the music to The Magnificent Seven. So I introduced... An animal house. A, an animal house, that's yeah. right. And uh, so I'm introducing Eli. I mentioned the first time I ever saw him, I was 15, uh, down in Florida, at a triple bill, an outdoor theater triple bill, on a biology project with my high school, you know, 15 high school kids. And I saw this guy, and I said, Eli, this this Mexican rode in, and I did my impression of Eli Wallach as, as the as the uh, head of the you know the the uh, tro- uh, the gangsters the Mexican tribe. Uh, so I did this, and I introduce Eli, and Eli walks up, and the first thing he said was, "That's the worst Sammy Davis Jr. impression I've ever heard." <laughs> so then he introduces Elmer Bernstein, and he says to Elmer as Elmer is coming up to get his award you know, Elmer, if I would have known that you were going to write the music that you did, I would have ridden my horse differently. And Elmer Bernstein said, you idiot, I wrote the music to how you rode your damn horse. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but only Eli could imagine which one came first. But he was, what, a, what an amazing guy.
2: I, I read a story that Eli Wallach at one point broke his hip he was old and he broke his hip and I think he had to have it replaced and he was he was sitting there in the hospital and the doctor said, Eli, I want you to get up and walk to me. And he kept saying, No, I'm in too much pain, I can't get up. And his wife was there and the wife Jackson, said to Jackson. the doctor, she said, Tell him that you're the camera. And he said, I'm the camera, Eli. Walked, and he got up and walked well, yeah, over. Yeah. <laughs> he know. was, I, I, you know, there used to be, or probably
3: still is, there's a doctor. Every time you have a job in a in a movie or TV show, you have yeah. to get a physical. And I can't remember the name of the doctor, but he, Katz, I think, Dr. Katz, down on Fifth Avenue and 10th Street, 12th Street. Everybody, that's where everybody goes. So I was getting ready to shoot this film that I was going to direct. And I... Go there and, and I meet the doctor who's usually a very chatty guy and he's completely quiet. He's not saying anything. And uh, the opening scene with me and Eli in the movie is he says, I'm shrinking. And I say, what do you mean you're shrinking? You look fantastic. He said, what are you talking about? I'm the size of a peanut. This goes on and on for about five minutes, three minutes. Anyway, I'm sitting with the doctor. The doctor doesn't say anything and I'm kind of confused because usually he's like, Talking away. And he checks off everything he has to do to approve my getting into the film. And the next words out of his mouth are, I'm shrinking. And I look at him and go, what are you talking about? He said, look at me. I'm the size of a peanut. I said, what's going on? He said, Eli was just here. He did the entire first scene for the lady. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he's, now, a, he's a character.
2: Was a now, character. those doctors who examine you for movies yeah. are, are pretty infamous or like you could be breathing your last breath and they'll go um okay yeah <laughs> i think you're in good shape <laughs>
1: Especially in the studio system. Yes. Yeah.
2: I, I guess so.
3: I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know <laughs> what, what you need to pass other than yeah. I've always passed, so. <laughs>
1: you know, we had Joe, Joe Pantoliano here, and I believe that, yeah, Joey Pants. I believe, and uh, you probably noticed, that Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson were helpful to yes, him very, very early very in his very career. Yeah. 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 Mentored him a little bit. And well, gave he, him they're a, like that, both, he, yeah.
3: both Eli and Ann, and the kids are fantastic. It's a wonderful family, amazing family. Honored to have been with the man.
1: Yeah, yeah. We this is what we love on this show. We love to talk about the old character actors. Well, and you work now. With I'm sheriff. an old character actor.
3: <laughs> what do you mean? I was like telling talk about? Gil
1: about some of the great ones you worked with, like Ben Gazzara and Jack.
3: I did Jack work Powell with Ben. So. Ben was uh, Jack. Pa- oh my God! You know, when you think back, fifty years is a long time. You run into some amazing people. Yeah, yeah. I got a. Uh, uh, I had met uh, Ben Gazzara. Like, man, I can't remember through. Anyway, I'm in New Orleans for the Jazz Festival and I get a phone call from Ben Gazzara. Petey, it's Ben. I'm doing a movie in, I'm doing a movie in uh, Bali." And I go, "Fantastic, congratulations." He said, "No, you idiot. I want you to play my brother. Do you think you can play my brother?" I said, "If I'm if I show up on the set, I can be your brother." Anyway, I was there for 2 weeks. I think I worked 3 days and shopped 10. It was fantastic.
2: Beyond the ocean that the one? Beyond, what yeah. a, God Almighty! Yeah. Don't do this research.
3: Yeah, yeah. Beyond the Ocean was yeah. like Beyond the Theaters. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And I, I just remembered another Eli Wallach story. uh Oh, he was he was filming um, the Misfits. Oh my God! And it was right in the middle, I guess, of the breakup of Marilyn mm-hmm. Monroe and Arthur Miller. And and after a long day, he's exhausted. He shows Eli Wallach goes back to the hotel. Marilyn Monroe is walking down the hallway, crying and angry. And she sees Eli Wallach and says, "What is it with you Jewish men? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you hear these stories?" That's
3: no, great. that is absolutely. I I would believe that in a minute. Yeah. Well, just look at the people in that movie. Oh my God. Yeah. What a legendary cast. But he, Eli, was in in some amazing. Theater and, and movies. Makes what you a, two
1: right degrees guy. removed from Marilyn Monroe if you do the, uh, if you do the uh, Kevin Bacon. Wouldn't I be one? One. 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 Right? Well, one. Yeah. Me to Eli to yeah, Marilyn. There yeah. you go. yeah And
3: Gable. You know, I did a, a movie called Chilly Scenes of Winter that uh, sure. Joan Micklin-Silver directed. And uh, in the movie was John Hurt and Mary Beth Hurt. And, uh, oh, my God, her name just went right out of my head. Uh, it'll come back to me. Shoot. What was she in? Uh, she was in. Uh, oh my god! It's not my. I didn't. It's not my Achilles. It's my brain that I screwed up. Um, <laughs> it'll come back to me. Okay, we'll continue anyway. There's a good story. Once I remember who it is.
1: All right, like you in that film.
3: Yeah, it's a good By the movie. Way. Jones Gray. That was the first film I did with her before Crossing the Lancer.
1: Yeah. Yes, Gilbert. We didn't. We we used to do Thursday episodes uh, all about our favorite movies. Gloria Graham.
3: Gloria, the Gra- Gloria oh, Graham. Gloria oh, Gloria sure. Graham. So Gloria Graham is playing John Heard's mother. And there's a scene, pardon me interrupt. No, go right ahead. Where we come in, we're going to have Thanksgiving dinner with, with Gloria Graham. Violet Bick from It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes, that's it. Very good. Anyway, she comes down the stairs in her costume. We're shooting, literally shooting the scene. She's wearing a satin dress and sneakers. And she says hello to her son, John. And then she says hello to me, his best friend, Sam. And she gives me an incredible kiss, which I don't remember planning, but my reaction, which is on film, is basically me going, like, uh, I'd call it a triple skull, but it was, you know, just my reaction. So we finished the scene, and all I kept thinking is, Gloria Graham kissed Humphrey Bogart. Does that mean I kissed Humphrey (laughs) Bogart? One degree of separation. She kissed Jimmy Stewart, and I've I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. been kissing a lot of interesting yeah. guys. Yeah,
1: I think she's in the big heat too. With oh Glenn yeah, Ford. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: But I, when I, you know, in I started in '71. By the time I was out in California, it was '77. So there still were tons of those old movie stars still around. The people that I idolized and looked up to. So it really wasn't far fetched for me to. Uh, to think of Gloria Graham and Humphrey Bogart in the same and same
2: moment. You were saying when you started, uh, Frank and I were talking about this before, that you started, it was a little late for someone to be starting.
3: 23, yeah.
2: And, <clears throat> and, and that you, you said something about it, and Frank wrote up, because I always mention this, is that. Like I always say with me, I got on stage first time when I was 15. Wow. Did you know right away that you wanted to be on stage? Yeah. Yeah. I I knew I wanted to be in show business. And what I always say is back then, I had stupidity on my side. I still have it on my side. (laughs) I'm a proud member of that club.
3: Yeah, late is, I, I didn't realize it was late, Uh I worked with Paul Schofield on a movie called Utz, directed by uh, a Dutch director named George Schloyser. And Schofield was certainly one of my idols. And we were having lunch one day in a hotel in Prague. And we're making small talk. And he keeps calling me Peter, and I'm calling him Paul. And I'm, all I'm thinking is, I'm calling Paul Schofield yeah. Paul? And we're talking cool. and making small talk. And uh, he said to me, I can't do his voice, but it's this magnificent British voice, and he said, uh, when did you start, Peter? And I said, start what? He said, acting, acting, dear boy. When did you start? And I said, I was 23. And he paused and he said, late. And I went, wow. Because, you know, in England, the idea of a theatrical, theatrical career goes back 400 years. It's not like a frivolous thing. So that was one of the first times I thought, hmm,
1: I think what Gilbert's alluding to specifically, too, is I heard you say, and we discussed this before, that had you been older, an older person checks themselves, an, o- an older person right. knows not to do something as foolhardy as suddenly well, going to suddenly. That's why I
2: said I'm in the it, stupid it, club. It's a show know. business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, It's like when people say to me, like, "How would you feel about your kids going into show business?" I feel like I would understand them saying to me, "We're going to make money by." going to trash cans in the street and taking out soda bottles and turning it in because that would make sense that actually makes that sense. that was your plan B yes <laughs> <laughs> but uh show business zero sense. yeah I, I know
3: except my feeling what my my father said to me something that you know obviously stayed with me he said if you find something you love to do you'll be the luckiest man on the planet. And I, what he was getting at, obviously, is anybody who finds whatever passion they have, it it gets you through a lot. And I remember when I started, my parents, who were, you know, they were all for this. You know, they thought this is really fantastic. I grew up in the Bronx. I was going to the circus and rodeos since I was three, and baseball games, and then you know, theater and concerts for young people. I never put anything together like this is something for me to do. So when I started. And like we were said, you know, 23 already. A lot of my folks' friends, and I guess some people in the family, would try to encourage my parents that he'll figure it out and he'll he'll end up having a serious life. And this is just a phase he's going through. And, of course, I'm sure they were thinking that there's no security in show business. But as we've certainly learned to today, tell me a secure job. There isn't one. That's true. And uh, so I think, even though it was late, uh, I was lucky enough to get things that encouraged me to keep going, and I got lucky enough to have a career out of it. but i would I would think if, i I wouldn't discourage somebody. I mean, I've had that much fun. I'd be honest about how loony this is and how hard it is to you know get a job and sustain a career. But hell, you know, give it a try.
1: It just hit you on New Year's Day. I mean, that was well, 1971. I, I did,
3: yeah, I actually did. I was working at the uh, remember the club downstairs or the upstairs. It was a joint on 56th Street off of Sixth Avenue. I think there was there was clubs upstairs and a club yeah. downstairs, and you either <laughs> you were either working at the upstairs or the downstairs or the dance Anyway, I was serving drinks on New Year's Eve, and I probably made seventy five bucks. And in 1971, seventy five bucks that's a lot of money. Somehow I ended up at my parents' house on 75th street. At least that's what I remember. And I woke up the next day, maybe 10 o'clock, ten thirty in the morning. And I, the first thought that hit me as my eyes saw daylight was I'm going to be an actor. It was literally that word, those words. And it was as clear as the clearest thing I ever heard. Now, had I fantasized about it or thought about it? I'm sure I did. But that was the moment that I actually said, okay, I'm gonna do this.
1: <clears throat> it's interesting how you put it together too. No family in show business. You just decided, I'm gonna I'll call friends, I'll I'll yeah. I'll put headshots together. Yeah. I'll well, I didn't even together. know what
3: a headshot of you know, what, what it was.
1: You just said I'll figure it out.
3: I, I knew two people from I went to the I graduated University of Buffalo in nineteen sixty eight. So I called a couple of friends up. One of them was Ron Silver, Ronnie Silver. And I said, uh, I'm thinking about I'm not thinking. I'm I'm starting, I'm gonna do this. And I think I think
2: oh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. We edit. Thanks. That's, I like j- it. that's usually my fault. <laughs> <at this point. laughs> it's, it's, it's my agent with a job. <laughs> um, uh,
3: and and I said, So wh- how do you do this? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. And it was January first. They said, well, you need a picture and a resume. I said, okay, a picture, I guess that's of me. They said, yeah, it's called a headshot. And it's, you know, it's something that you hand in at the audition. And then you you give them your resume. And I said, what what, what do you mean a resume? They said, you know, a resume of all your work. I said, Ronnie, I did a play in high school and a play in college. I don't have a resume. He said, make it up. I said, make up what? He said, make up the resume. I said, how do you make up a resume? (laughs) He said, invent the name of a theater company, pick a small town in any state, and give yourself a part, like you played Laertes in the Sunshine Players in Keokuk, Iowa. And I said, and you do the whole resume like that? He said, you fill up the whole resume with all this phony crap. I said, so you lie? He said, it's acting. That's what we do. We're liars. We're professional liars. So I said, but don't they... Don't they, won't they check? They said, no, they know you're lying. If you come in with a resume that full and you look like you're 18, they know you haven't done this job. I said, so why am I doing this? Well, to make it look like you're a professional actor. Anyway, in my demented head, I'm thinking, okay, if everybody's filling up their resume, what if I do the opposite? So I made a resume that was all blank. It was like a, one line from a high school play and another line, blank, 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 blank. And at the bottom of the page, I wrote uh, 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 Bella Abzug's uh, aide-de-camp in her election uh, uh, in 1970. Like,
1: right, because you were a social worker. Right. right. You worked for Bella So that, was,
3: that blank page. And my thinking was, I'm not going to get a job because of talent. I, I, it's going to be through some charming conversation. So if I can I in this is how you I was thinking. If I can get them to comment on this blank page and if I can get them in a conversation whoever that was maybe I'll charm the pants off them and I'll get a job. Well I started the first audition was January 2nd in a theater on I think it was 4th Avenue and 4th Street in one of it, it remember the 70s what it was like back then. So it was there were no windows in this brownstone. It was freezing cold. <laughs> and all I kept thinking was, this is the theater. But <laughs> That was the theater. And about six weeks, uh, about two or three weeks went by, and I had an interview at a theater called the Omni Theater on West 18th Street. And I just went on my way and was getting rejected from here and there, handing in my silly resume with a picture. And then about February, middle of February, something like that, I get a phone call from this theater and they said, the person who we hired dropped out. We'd like you to play the part. And I said, fine, great, okay. So, I, I, you know, it was no money. It was off-off-Broadway. And I said to them, just out of curiosity, why did you hire me? They said, we had such a great time talking to you about your resume that had nothing on it. There you that go. we thought. So, so, was so that was pretty
1: sorry. smart for a 23-year-old to know that you needed a conversation piece or some other just way in. It was my
3: instinct yeah. that it wasn't going to be through the traditional I mean, I might get lucky, but I had I I never went to acting school, so I had no right. I had no vocabulary, but I had chutzpahs. So. Yeah,
1: a lot of hutzpah. Yeah. How soon did you play Chico in Minnie's Boys?
3: Uh, Chico was nineteen seventy three, so relatively okay. quickly, relatively soon, about two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. I was working with my improv company, and one of the uh, actors was uh, a woman named Marsha Myers, and she was good friends with Louis Stadlin, who had created Sure Groucho. And in, in the 1970 version on Broadway uh, with Shelly Winters. Shelly Winters, yeah. So they were going to be doing a 10-week touring uh, company of Minnie's Boys. And, and Louie said he would recommend me to play Groucho. Well, weeks go by. Nothing happens. And I get a phone call. I'm living on Horatio Street in the village between Hudson and 8th. And it's like... 10 o'clock in the morning, and the producer calls up and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, and we'd like to offer you the part of Chico. And I said, uh, you, you want me to audition for Chico? He said, no, no, we, we, we'd like you to play Chico. I said, oh, I, I thought I was going to audition for Groucho. And they said, well, Louis Stadlin is going to play Groucho. I said, oh, okay, and you want me to come in? And They said, yeah, we want you to play Chico. How soon can you get here? I said, where are you? He said, we're on 8th Avenue and 50th Street, wherever the rehearsal hall was. I said, and I'm trying to think as fast as I can. I I don't know how to do Chico. I mean, I kind of know how to do Chico. Groucho, I can do. So I said, I can be there in about 45 minutes. They said, fine, as soon as you get here, we'll introduce you to everybody. And over time, quickly, I realized, oh, my God, they're giving me this job. Somebody must have dropped out. Uh, and it was actually Erwin Pearl who created the part on Broad who had gotten ill and they needed a replacement. So I take the bus up. I don't take the taxi. I take the bus up trying to think, Chico, 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 how am I going to do Chico? <laughs> I said, well, they're brothers. I'll do Groucho with an Italian accent. <laughs> pretty
1: good. Pretty, <laughs>
3: it's pretty close. So I did Groucho in an Italian accent. Anyway, we get there. I get there. They... Introduce, Producer, director introduces himself, and he says, we're on page 24 and pushes me on stage, and it was my first equity job. It was $325 a week, I, and I'm not a singer. I don't sing. I mean, I can carry a tune, maybe, but not in front of 1,600 people <laughs> right, in the right, Philadelphia right, Playhouse right. and around. You're not a song and dance I'm man. I'm not a song and dance man. Uh so I take the job, I didn't take the job, I was still to have the job, and uh, uh, went off and did the show. Great sidebar to this. So we opened to, you know, it was only two weeks. That was the end of the tour. Great people, a lot of fun. So we we get reviewed in the first two days. And in the playbill, there's a, they the, you know, they couldn't, they weren't going to reprint the playbill just because I was, you know, showing up. So they had a little sticker that said the part of Chico normally played by Erwin Pearl, uh, uh, will be played by Peter Rieger. And I, I mean, all I, I was in war babies. I did some off, off Broadway and I'm thinking, okay, this is my first billing. So the Thursday after we opened, there was one more critic. We do the show and I'm not even thinking about critics. Just now I'm doing the show. And there's a scene where all the brothers sing to each other. And I, it was, uh, where was I when they, where was I when they passed out love or something like that? Anyway, I hit notes that Schoenberg hadn't invented. It was ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Pancakes were flying out of my mouth. And the three other guys were looking at me like, we can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) This is the solo part. This is your part. And I couldn't find my, my ear couldn't get me back to the key. Okay, so the show ends and everybody's very supportive and ah, it happens to everybody. The review came out that the next day. The piece of paper, the slip of paper that said I was in it, that the reviewer got, that slip of paper had slipped out of the the review. I'd slipped out of the playbook. Oh, damn. So Erwin Pearl got the worst review <laughs> of his <business>. life. <laughs> Did he ever forgive you? <laughs> uh, he, he did. He did. We, we he died very young. It was yeah. very sad, but very, very sweet guy. But you know, if that doesn't demonstrate the absolute frivolousness of it all, it's just so extraordinary. It's random. Were you a Marx Brothers fan? Oh, going crazy, into it, yeah. so you knew. Yeah. So you yeah. knew. When I was young, you know, we had uh, here in New York City. Uh, well, I was living in in a town called Ardsley. By the time I was. Seven and a half, eight years old. And uh, Million Dollar Movie was on Mm -hmm. nine times a week. Mm -hmm. So they showed the Marx Brothers movies. And like most kids, I was a mimic. And and there was nothing more easy or more fun for a kid to imitate than Chico and and Groucho. And, of course, Harper was fun because he could make those faces. And I actually met Chico's daughter.
2: Oh, I met her. You know,
3: uh, Yeah. And oh, Maxine, Maxine, Maxine. Maxine yeah, yeah, who was uh, in did a lot of work in uh, in uh,
2: she was advertising, an I think, an agent, yeah. yeah.
3: Anyway, I I met her, and I referred to her father as Chico, and she said, "Oh no, 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 Chico." I said, "Chico." She said, "Yeah, Chico for Chicken Chaser." That that's how we got the name. And I was reading. I was reading the you know Groucho and me and Harpo speaks when I was a kid and laughing my ass off. And it was what was nice is as I got older to realize that was that they were as funny when I was a, uh, an adult as when I was a kid. It
2: was yeah. Amazing. I I met her and it was well number one it was fascinating. Because yeah. oh, yeah. she looked like Chico, <laughs> and she would have these stories. Oh yeah. And you'd sit there and go. Oh my god, I'm listening to actual Marx yeah. Brothers stories yeah, yeah. firsthand.
3: Well, that's the beauty of of I think what we do is you do come across people who are part of the history of uh, American entertainment.
1: That's what we're trying to do with this show. Yeah.
3: Well, that's the that's it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the Marx Brothers came out of uh, out of uh, vaudeville, sure.
2: And we were sitting, Al Sheen. yeah. Frank and I was sitting at dinner, and uh, with a reporter, and he brought with Gino, yeah, yeah. with Gino, and <laughs> he'll be he'll be happy. To you, know. don't know his, you don't want to know you don't want to name him on, name on the show. Out. <laughs> <laughs> but he had like a girlfriend with him or something. and and the name Groucho Marx came up. And she had no idea who that was. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's yeah, th- easy th- easy. there's.
3: Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, well, what the hell doesn't even have to be that quick. In terms of uh, being got the remembered, time yes, we do. In terms of being remembered, you know, Animal House was a big success, and The Mask was big, and it's nice to have people stop you. And I certainly know the difference between an enormous star. And I have, I'm very happy with what I've done as an actor. But you think of yourself as living on in, in memory, if you're lucky, that you create something interesting. So my girlfriend, Cornelia Reed, writes crime fiction. And her third book is called Invisible Boy. And it takes place around the oldest cemetery in Jamaica, Queens, called Prospect Cemetery. And I had a chance to meet uh, her, I guess it's her cousin, our cousin Kate, who was taking care of this cemetery, uh, Kate Ludlum. And at the time, the cemetery was so overgrown. It's right near the uh, Jamaica train stop. Mm-hmm. You really couldn't even tell. It just looked like a forest. And we walked through this forest. And as we got to the end, towards the original, close to where the not the, no, the original was created in, In uh, 1658, that's 50 years after Henry Hudson dropped Anchor in the Bay. And she shows me the gravestone of an actor named James H. Hackett. And it's so overgrown, the the mulch is almost halfway up. James H. Hackett. And all you can see is J.H.H. And I look up James H. Hackett. James H. Hackett was Lincoln's favorite actor. He died in 1878. His obituary is one of the most extraordinary things I have ever read. And it goes on and on in this beautiful 19th century language about how amazing this man was. He was so famous for his portrayal of Falstaff. This is in the obituary. He was so famous for his performance as Falstaff that it would be several generations before an American actor would have the courage to play that part again. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. And he wrote books about interpreting Shakespeare and how to play Shakespeare. The most famous actor in New York City theater, and I had no idea who he was. That's fascinating And that cured me like that (laughs) about fame and how... Look, it's gonna. It's it. It's amazing to think in a hundred years there will be people going Marlon who. Yeah, scary. It's scary, but it's actually kind of good. It's very humbling.
2: By the way, I think we know Lincoln's least favorite actor. Yes, yes. <laughs> but the funny thing is, it won't be a hundred years.
3: Well, yeah, it's that's the gonna, thing. I just push out like, that far, but yes, of course. Like
2: right now, they're yeah. saying Marlon who. No, no, no. I totally
3: agree. But you know, that this was so extraordinary.
2: Well, I, I remember watching a movie on TV, one of those uh I guess the Harper movies where Paul Newman was the yeah. detective. Oh, yeah. And he's in a scene with um Rabbit Wagner. Right. And Wagner as a joke in the scene does a Cagney imitation. Right. And I thought, oh God, nobody watching this is gonna know who James Cagney was. And then I thought nobody is going to know who Paul Newman or Robert Wagner. Yeah, yeah, it goes fast. It goes very. Let's hope fast.
1: that isn't true. I mean, part of the reason we do this show, and I told you outside, is to keep that kind of history alive. We've had six or seven people here who work with Keaton. Buster Keaton. Yes, Chuck McCann. He, he was, was my idol. Jim, yeah, James Buster Karen Keaton. was he worked he with He taught Buster. me how to act,
3: Buster Keaton. There you go. Mm. I mean, literally. I mean, I would when I started, since I didn't have any, you know, any acting. Uh, background in terms of studying, my instinct was to go and look at Keaton and Chaplin uh, because they, they were going, they, they were people who didn't go to acting school. They were people who learned how to do this as a craft, as apprenticed people. And I thought what they did was so extraordinary. Um, And I really studied how they put their characters together and their histories were extraordinary. Do you know how Buster Keaton got his name? Yeah, he used to yeah, get tossed Houdini. into the audience. Houdini, Harry Houdini. Yeah, yeah. he was yeah. a real Buster.
2: Because his his parents, I think they the made a Keetons. harness. Yeah, it was right.
3: a. He, they put a. They sewed a suitcase handle to his That's coat. Correct. And at the end of the act, the the father and the mother would argue with each other. And Joe Keaton would pick up his son, who was three years old, and throw him into the backdrop. And he would, I mean, that's how he got his Buster name. It was yeah. amazing. He had yeah, his own
2: studio at 21, I think. Yeah, because Houdini would watch them and yeah. said, you should call that Kid Buster. Yeah. Well, just the idea of thinking of vaudeville and
3: Houdini watching Keaton.
1: I know. It's great history. It's just fantastic. Yeah.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast right after this. That's what you say. <laughs> it's
3: Frank and Gilbert yes, time. yes, it's Frank and Gilbert time. It's
4: Frank and, Gil- it's Frank and Gilbert, time. Gilbert time. It's Frank and, Gil- it's
2: Frank and, Gil- it's Frank and Gil- Gilbert time. And now, sadly... We return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. Can you imagine nowadays? If for entertainment they threw a little kid, <laughs>
1: <laughs> different times. Yeah, probably, the, the child labor laws were lax. Oh as, yes, as well.
3: Well, that's why he used to wear a beard. You yeah, know, they they made him right. look. They thought they were making him look like a midget. That's right. <laughs> By the way, we I mean had- even his the The mother and the father, they all dressed the same, because they knew that you know you can't throw a child into a <laughs> into the
1: scenery. We've had I think four or five guests on this show who worked with Keaton. A that's couple, amazing. Uh, yeah, a couple who worked with Chaplin uh, not oh my Chaplin, God. Uh, uh, Harold Lloyd, uh, Groucho, Groucho. Yeah, oh. and one one of our guests worked with Al Sheen. Joyce, do you know Joyce Van Patten? Sure. When she was a kid, she oh was my in a Broadway. God. She was on a Broadway show with Al. Well, Sheen. Well, that's
3: why. That's why. It, it, I guess that's one of the great residual joys of this is that you actually get to sit around and bullshit with people about who they came in contact yes. with. It, it makes the ghosts of the theater and the film business real. Yeah, one person
1: I, who worked with Chaplin we had was Tippi, was Tippi Hedren. Yeah, because she's In Countess from Hong Kong. Right. right,
2: and we had on James Karen and he did. He he knew the Three Stooges. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. That's the fun of this: is
1: is the people, the stories and, of these people. Yeah, absolutely. When they're gone, the stories are gone. Yeah, and, and yeah. he
2: said that Mo was a major Shakespearean fan. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And you go, it's it's yeah. impossible to envision. It. Well, if you think about, who,
3: none of us can predict the part, the job, the event that's going to give us a career. You just don't think that way. And and when it happens, do you ride that horse to the end? I mean, what do you do when you're given such, you know, you're given a life like that? It's just extraordinary.
1: You have a lot of perspective on this stuff. And I've, I've asked this question of other guests. But for a guy that in 1971 woke up one day and said, I'm going to be an actor.
3: You, there was no um. It was literally, <laughs> I'm going to be
1: an actor. But you, you must have had a couple of pinch me moments when you're suddenly the only other person in a scene with Burt Lancaster.
3: Uh, that was amazing. Now, the great thing about working with your idols or people you admire is, especially if you're working together, is you only have about an hour of our oh, shucks, and then you got to be an actor. That's it. But, I mean, Bert Lancaster, I'm sure I flattered him up and down the highway, <laughs> but eventually I got to do the scene with him. But I, I, uh, in 1963, I went to the March on Washington. I was 16 years old. I went with my cousin and uh, my, my mom's cousin, Dorothy Hardy. And my folks usually would go to these events and take me to these events. But for some reason, they didn't go to the March on Washington. You know, the I have a dream speech. So I get home and my, I said, gee, did you? was it on television? Did you see it? I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was there were a quarter of a million people there. They said, oh, yeah, you made history. I said, what are you talking about? They said, this is an historic event. What happened today is one of the most amazing things in modern American history. It's going to transform our country to the good. And it was extraordinary to watch. And we're sorry we didn't get to go with you, but we're really proud that you were there. And they said one of the more interesting things were all the celebrities that were there. And they mentioned Marlon Brando and Charlton uh, Heston uh, and Heston was there. was there. Absolutely. And Burt Lancaster and blah, 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 blah. And I loved Burt Lancaster because he was, again, another actor who you could imitate. Yeah. You just (laughs) couldn't resist going, is that you? (laughs) And his laugh and the whole thing. So when I worked with him, I told him the story of going on the March on Washington. And I said, were you there? And he said, as a matter of fact, I was. He said, I was in Paris making a movie called The Train. And I collected 2,000 signatures of all the Americans who were in Paris, and brought it as a gift to Martin Luther King, who when he would visit in Los Angeles would stay with Burt Lancaster. Amazing guy, Burt Lancaster. And it was just so much fun. And my, when I first met him, my initial thought was, this is extraordinary. This guy looks and sounds exactly like Burt Lancaster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you got to work with Kirk Douglas too.
2: Well, Bri- Briefly. Briefly. I mean,
3: I was, uh, in I scene. think we were in a scene together.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't yeah, remember yeah, yeah. a lot of conversation. You know, yeah. when,
2: when you said Al Sheen before, because, of course, Al Gallagher Sheen was the uncle Sheen. of the Marx Brothers. And when I was talking to Maxine Marx, one of those moments where she mentioned Al Sheen, and I immediately started to, I put my hand out and immediately started to sing, absolutely, Mr. Gallagher. And she grabs my hand, shakes it, and goes, Positively, Mr. Sheen Superb And it felt to me like like a lightning bolt Yeah Connecting me with the Marx Brothers That's well, nice. that,
3: That's exactly what I, the, the Gloria Graham story I mean, you just, you want to, it's iconic You want to touch something that you feel part of In a way that's beyond just having a job You're part of something You're part of this insane tradition in which people fill a room as perfect strangers and turn themselves into an audience. This thing with lots of eyes and a and a this extraordinary attention.
1: Well, just talk about local hero just for a couple sure. just for a couple of seconds because my wife and I watched it Saturday night and it just holds up. Was so, pretty good? It holds yeah. so beautifully. Yeah. And, and I, I I was watching and I said to my wife, I wonder how often Peter pops this in and and can watch it. I mean, there's the old question about watching yourself sure, on screen, sure. but yeah. that one.
3: It's, I don't watch it a lot. I, I I, just remember it so well. I mean, every once in a while, I'll see it pass by on cable or something. 35th but, anniversary. I know. Yeah. It's amazing. 1983. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Well, it was, uh, that's one of those, okay, I can hang up my actor shingle kind of jobs, you know. It's that good. Well, I was given permission to do nothing by the director, Bill Forsyth, and it's very rare in which somebody trusts you to just bring you to the part. And that's what that part wanted, and that's what that director wanted, and it was a great experience. I asked him, I was noticing that anytime anybody had a suggestion, he would shoot it. and I mean, any other actor, anybody in the crew, the guy passing donuts and tea. And after two weeks of this, I said, Bill, how come I I noticed that every time somebody... Makes a suggestion, you shoot it. I said, well, how come? He said, because it's faster to shoot an idea than to debate an idea. And I thought, oh, that's pretty I love smart. That. Yeah.
1: You know, I've seen it about 10 times and watching it the other night, and correct me if I'm way off on this, I thought I saw something uh, different about it for the first time, that, that Lancaster's character is the cautionary tale of what Mac might become. He lives alone. Right. He has no family. As I've the never thought of, of it that of him way. Making but the omelet yeah. By himself.
3: That's a very interesting And Max uh, got that much yeah. ambition. I've never thought of that, but that is an interesting uh, parallel. Absolutely. I wonder if he planned it. You know, in any in my experience there are the things you you construct and then there are the accidents that happen that only other that only the audience can see. I've heard that plenty of times. Not, I don't mean specifically yeah. that, but um, you just can never tell. Are we allowed to curse on this? Yes, go right oh, ahead. Okay, I, I worked look who's on the, the host.
2: Huh? <laughs> no, look who's the <laughs> look host Look who you're talking oh, to. Fish. Of course,
3: <laughs> What the fuck was I thinking? Um, so I was. I did the thirtieth anniversary of a Harold Pinter play called "The Birthday Party," and I got. I was playing Goldberg, and it was at CSC on Thirteenth Street off Fourth Fourth Avenue. And Carrie Perloff was the producer and the director at the time. Gene Stapleton was in the production. And uh, uh, who else was in? David Strathairn. is was a wonderful company. And we got to work with Harold Pinter for a week, which was thrilling to me because I just am mad for his work. And he was so influ- influential. Now, I know that you can't really ask a creative person what they meant But how often am I going to get to ask Harold Pinter what he meant about something? I mean, most people can't recognize what he means anyway. So we were chatting together one day, and I said, Harold, I have to ask you, um, this passage here, what does it mean? And he said, Peter, I wrote this play 30 years ago. I have no fucking idea what it was. (laughs) 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 And basically, he was endorsing what I had come to believe, which was, you you know, you write the play or sure. direct the movie or whatever you do, and then it belongs to the audience and you're on to the next thing.
1: It's a movie that's about things that are important.
3: Yeah. About not yeah.
1: missing important yeah. things like the Northern Lights and, and getting so caught up in yourself and your ambitions. I think so, you, I think so. You miss the bigger picture.
3: But I think that's, well, you know, McIntyre is a character who is learning what he doesn't have and what he doesn't have yeah. ...is happiness yeah. or peace of mind. All
1: good performances.
3: Oh, great performances. Yeah. Mr.
5: McIntyre in Scotland, Mr. Hepper, should I transfer him to Mr. Fountain?
1: No, no, no.
3: let me have Yes, sir. Happy Hair, McIntyre.
0: I'm watching the sky, sir. It's doing some amazing things. It's got everything. Reds, greens, and kind of... Sh- shimmering, and it's a noise, too, like a far-off thunder, only it's softer. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it.
3: Be more specific, McIntyre. You're my eyes and ears there. Give me details.
0: Sir, I'll give you the colors first, sir. It's white... And green and red. I'm sorry, that's the phone box. Oh, it's blue. It's just blue. It's like a a shower of color. Tell him it's the Aurora Borealis. I have some more information, sir. It's the Aurora Borealis. But
3: it's beautiful. Ah, you're a lucky man, McIntyre. I haven't seen the Aurora since 53 in Alaska.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. And we have to, of course, get to Animal House. I've heard of it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) How did that come about?
3: Uh, I was in California, and my agent, uh, a wonderful agent named Eddie Bondi. Actually, his nickname was Eddie Bookem Dead or Alive Bondi. (laughs) I love it. Because he had booked a woman who'd been dead for six months. (laughs) And got her the most money she'd ever earned. Fantastic. And he was pissed that she had died anyway, he got he had gotten me the uh, audition, and it was me and thousands of other actors who looked like they were in college. And uh, I think I went in four times. My memory is that I auditioned with Tim, Matheson. But I must have met them earlier, or maybe I met Michael Chinich, the casting director first. I can't remember. But my first memory was was, uh, me and Tim auditioning. And I think there were three or four auditions. There was, uh, the last one was me and Karen. And uh, I got the job and all I knew knew was that it was incredibly funny.
1: And the part Ramis wrote for himself. Yes, Harold
3: was not happy that he wasn't (laughs) cast. (laughs) Wonderful man, Harold Ramis. But he was really
2: not happy that I got the job. Tim Matheson, when he was on the podcast, told us that, and it seemed very strange for someone like Belushi, who's a wild man and on drugs and drinking and all that, he had a schedule of going there, filming the movie, and then rushing back to New York, doing Saturday Night Live, and then rushing back. Yeah, he came back on, he would come back on Sunday I think he shot Monday,
3: Tuesday, Wednesday. He might have, he probably left Thursday because they were shooting Friday. And yeah, that went on for six weeks. And we had one week of so-called rehearsal, basically us just hanging out together and getting fucked
2: up. But it, it seems so strange for someone like Belushi, who...
3: I don't know how far into whatever his demons had taken him were, but he was really well prepared i mean it was as it was as as professional a relationship as i've had with any actor he was always always ready always i mean i he lights up the screen my yeah. god his imagination um is just extraordinary and very free i mean he was really really free on camera it's not an easy thing to do i mean john was a brilliant sketch comic but creating a character for an hour and a half, that's a different animal. And unfortunately, he was just really getting into some command of that when he died, which is such a shame.
1: Yeah. you, but, got, you I'm, I'm sorry, Peter. Go ahead.
3: No, I was going to say, I, my memory, look, it was 1977. You know, cocaine was not a bad thing. AIDS didn't exist. Mm-hmm. We were young and stupid. Who knew, you know, that there was trouble ahead? So I don't remember... John being any different than anybody else, to be honest with you.
1: It's interesting. Including the, the crew. Interesting. Yeah. How, how quickly the cast bonded because oh, well, we, we were saying this to Tim, how how the, the natural chemistry, and maybe that's something Landis saw that was part of his, his, it, his, it's his smarts. It's not something you
3: hire. It you just don't happen, hire chemistry. Huh? Yeah. No, that's it's an great. accident.
1: That's great. And I was saying to Tim, the way the two of you guys yeah. play off each other, yeah. like you'd been friends for 20 years, like it just I think that's just why
3: it, it, it helped. The scene... John Alanis had me and Tim improvise around that big dildo. Right. We had like a six foot, well, six foot, <laughs> six, eight, 12 I mean, it wasn't six is close to, okay, uh. but this was like, we're talking two feet. Anyway, we were having a hysterical time doing it. And it was very easy to play with Tim. And uh, not the dildo, I mean, yeah. Tim, Tim, the actor. Uh, but I think the skill of good casting is finding the, the actor who has an aspect of the character in their nature. And then you just have to get lucky, because you never know. It's a very intense environment, as you know.
1: Right. And you guys are still c- close, because you oh, see each other yeah. at the re- in his 40th reunion. Yeah, yeah. 35th for Local Hero, 40th yeah. for Animal House. And
3: thirty for uh, Chalice, uh, for uh, Crossing the Delancey. Crossing Delancey. Yeah. I think, you know, when you have an intense experience, you know, to be honest with you, my experience in the theater and movies and television. You know, you're shooting for four weeks to 12 weeks, let's say. In a play, it's four weeks of rehearsal, and maybe you get two or three months. It's very, very intense, and you learn a lot about each other. And at least in in, in my experience, as I was saying, I could not see people for 10, 20 years and just pick up right where we left off. That's nice. But for Animal House, it just was such a bizarre bond because it wasn't just a movie, it was we were putting kids through college. I mean, I had 12 year olds coming up and saying, I can't wait to go to college. I'm going,
1: <laughs> <laughs> they thought that was, was going to be. <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that, that Universal didn't want to make the movie and that, uh, well, you know, that it's Sean Daniel the, kept pushing and pushing. Sean and was pushing.
3: a big uh, cheerleader for the movie, but. You know, the the screenwriter and novelist, William Goldman, said the most famous line of all, which is nobody knows anything. Right. Now, he didn't mean nobody knew their craft. He just meant nobody knows what the results are going to be. So Hollywood and politics are very similar in that way. You never know what's going to happen. And, uh, yeah, you don't know.
1: Quick memories of of John Vernon and also Doug Doug well, Kenny.
3: Doug uh, Kenny was one of the writers of sure. Animal House. It was a drop dead pleasure to get to meet him. He was so wonderful, and he was a true Mensch, even though he, he was not part of the tribe. He came, <laughs> he came, he was <laughs> Jason. Far from, he came yeah. to Menschad around the corner, but a very sweet guy. God, we laughed, and John Vernon, who you just, uh, you just was a. The most cuddly, wonderful guy who played some of the most heinous, bad people. He
1: played great heavies.
3: But he did something which is not an easy thing to do, and that is he has to play, in Animal House, he has to be the bad guy, and he has to be funny. And he did both, and he was great.
1: I'd read that he kept trying to play it for laughs, and Landis had to keep telling him. No, I'm John. not so
3: sure about that. No. <laughs> I mean I mean I, John Vernon no. is a pretty good actor. He knew he knew what he was doing. And so in real life, he was the total opposite. Oh my god! Oh my god! Made you dinner. Oh, he just would regale you with amazing stories. Again, it's the same kind of thing. You just want to sit at the feet of people who've had a life doing this, and uh, it kind of, it kind of. Uh, it, it encourages you to keep going because nobody just tells you it was all an uphill climb. No, they all have horror stories about when they were down and they couldn't get work and how difficult it was and they wanted to give up. And you need to hear that kind of stuff, you know?
1: I think Gilbert wants to ask you about The Pickle Man because, as I was starting to say before, <clears throat> we used to do Thursday shows where we would just pick a favorite movie. Uh-huh. And one week I picked Local Hero, and another week he picked Crossing Delancey. So those are two movies that we've covered a, a lot on this show. Thrilled and delighted, and it's that's a, that's a movie that he loves.
2: You know, it, it's funny because I think there was an interview with Jennifer Aniston where she said that uh, most uh, romantic comedies aren't about the plot; they're about the scheme. That's interesting. And and I've noticed that there's always like it's usually a wacky scheme that makes no sense. And I thought, whereas Crossing Delancey, it's a love story. Absolutely, absolutely. there's no wackiness going on. Yeah, it's well, just no contrivance. To, yeah. yeah, yeah. You don't. Oh well, you have to pretend you're the president. Yeah. And- yeah, no. It's basically guy tries to get a date. Guy
3: can't get a date. Guy gets a date, and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> Uh, it was uh, I uh, had worked with Joan uh, Silver before in in uh, Chilly Scenes of Winter, and she sent me the uh, the script. Actually, I got sent uh, uh, Susan Sandler, who wrote the play, mm-hmm. sent me the play, and I couldn't do it. I was busy at the time, and she wrote me a postcard saying, "Well, maybe you'll do the movie. Who knows?" Anyway, years later, a couple, two, three years later, Joan sent me the screenplay, and it. It, she's a very good writer. And boy, she can cast a movie. That movie is filled with wonderful actors. And we did it in, uh, I think, October of 87. And it was great fun. And it was nice to play talk about being a mensch. It was nice to play a mensch on film, which is not an easy thing to do because you have to be unaware of your menschness <laughs> to be a mensch. <laughs> you know a self-conscious mensch. i don't i think i've heard it
1: well I, I i just watched it again with with the wife we had a little peter Rieger film festival in nice. preparation for this and i and if you if I should
3: send her some pickles
1: i we you should if you'll allow me to say it's interesting because he's a ca- you, you you he's a character that that is confident in who he is he's Absolutely. comfortable in who he is Yeah. yet he, you play it with such vulnerability you, well thank you, you. I,
3: I to to be honest walking with you that line, i think that he was It was a character, a a man who was comfortable in his shoes. He knew who he was. And that is not something you get to play every day. Because it's sort of like what you were saying, Gilbert. You don't have to be completely falling apart to play a character in need. Everybody's in need. And he was in need of love and affection and attention. And, uh... But he sure knew who he was.
1: He's attracted to her. He doesn't want to. He, he, he's he's not afraid to show it, but he doesn't want to be hurt because he catches on very quickly oh, yeah. to the fact that there yeah. isn't a mutual attraction. Yeah, and yet he doesn't abandon any of his principles. He, tell, he he tells her off in the classiest way possible. Very well. That's
3: a great scene when, when she tries to set me up with her girlfriend. It's great. And she apologizes and I say, well, it's okay. She's very nice. I like her. I would like going out with her. <laughs> Did the studio offer to do it if they changed it from
1: Jews to Italians or is that bullshit? Uh, it could be bullshit, but
3: it certainly is not a surprise.
1: <laughs> it would have well, horrified I, Gilbert.
2: I heard... <laughs> <laughs> I heard... Crossing the with,
3: crossing the Po River, crossing Mulberry, crossing yeah. Mulberry. Yeah,
2: I heard that um, Mean Streets. You know, Scorsese wanted to make it because he identified with of course, all yeah. of it, and the studios said to him, "Well, we want to do it, but right now black films are really popular." Oh, because they're saying that again today. Yeah, so they said. They'll make mean streets, but all black. <laughs>
3: well, he that's wasn't the, the
1: director for that.
2: The, the, yeah.
1: And all his work with autobiographical. Yeah, yeah.
3: But the beauty of that, yeah, as crazy as it is, there's something reassuring in how idiotic it is. <laughs> it's it's kind of like watching Doesn't politics today. It's, it's yeah. really amazing how stupid people are. But I asked one of the executives at, at Warner Brothers, I said, "How come you're only releasing this in about three, four hundred theaters?" And they said, uh, "Well, we don't think it's got a wide, you know, a wide audience." And I said, "Well, why is that?" They said, "Well, it's it's too ethnic." I said, "You mean too Jewish?" They said, "Oh, no, 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 too ethnic." <laughs> and I said, Do you, I said, "Do you remember a movie last year called Moonstruck, which won the Academy Award? That was pretty ethnic." Yeah. Really, they, wouldn't, good... they wouldn't bite. It was amazing.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
2: <laughs> well, I'll also, that's another story. When they were putting on the Mary... When they were making the Mary Tyler Moore right. show, uh, they they said originally she was supposed to be a divorced woman. And, and one of the execs said, no, we can't have her as a divorced woman. There are two things... That that the country hates divorced women and Jews. Oh
3: God! <laughs> they were
1: also afraid oh, that, that that the audience would be too stupid enough to think that she had divorced Dick Van Dyke.
2: Oh my God! That yes. was part of the, that <laughs> oh, was, my but, God. was
1: part of their aversion. You know, we like we like movies that capture New York too, and that's a movie. Well, that's a very that's New, New York movie that movie. captures Absolutely. New York. What well, we the, shot the, all Papaya over the King place. And,
3: yeah, I started out, anything. I used to work down on the Lower East Side at a settlement house on Eldridge and Rivington. So when we were shooting down there, it was like my, I didn't have to do any work as an actor. I mean, I knew those streets. I yeah. knew the, those pickle stands and all the.
2: And I I remember this a line, I forget the word she uses, but Amy Irving yeah. says, I, you know, it's, it's such and such. And, and I say, goes, I know what it means. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. I that, can't
3: remember what the word
2: is either. Shit, I just saw it. Yeah. That always stuck with me. Yeah. as It's like one of those perfect moments. Well, it
3: was at, the, at the, the opening night screening, the audience cheered after I said, I know what that means. Interesting. It, it was really, I can't remember what the word was: You guys just
1: did a yeah. reunion, you and Amy and-, and Joan, yeah. And, we, and Joan. We, we yeah, did a Q&A like down at- A couple at the, years ago.
3: Down on- uh, Was it Film Forum? Film Forum, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. On Horatio Street.
2: Because yeah. that that was that moment where it shows the character. It's like, you know, I'm a simple character, but I'm not stupid.
3: Yeah, and I yeah. think it's amazing what the the audience is always smarter than we are. And they knew, they knew what the story was. Inherently, they understand this is going to be a story about a woman making the wrong choice when the right choice is right in front of her eyes, which is true about all of us. And I think that that's good writing when the audience is ahead of you and can root for you or root against you. And waits for her
1: to come to her senses.
3: Well, that's that's kind of the story. Yeah.
5: Look, I'm sorry if I've seemed ambivalent, confused. I
3: know what
0: ambivalent means. Sorry.
5: Stop being so sorry. Bubby, close the door. June, Maryland, had a good time. Yeah. There's a little reception Saturday night at the bookstore. I thought maybe you two would like to...
3: Going to... to a baseball game Saturday.
5: Oh. Maybe I could be handling this better. Handling
0: what? What are you handling, Me?
5: I don't blame you
3: for being You come annoying.
0: to my stand, you invite me out to dinner, you set me up with your girlfriend, you get your bubby to
3: drag me over here, a guy could get a little tired of this routine. I did not. What's the problem here? You think it's so small, my world? You think it's so provincial? You think it defines me? Is that it?
5: No. No, I don't. I feel like I keep apologizing to you, like I can't get it right. Sam, I want to get it right.
3: That's where the grandmother comes in. A, yeah. You know, a wonderful actress named Rachel Bouger, who'd never acted in a movie and never had spoken English. She was a Yiddish theater actress. And she practically stole the whole I movie. I heard you
1: say you'd love to upstage anybody, but you couldn't. You, you met her and oh, you realized.
3: I saw her working with Amy. I went down the first day that we were shooting down on, you know, Grant Street or wherever the hell it was. And I was watching them shoot a scene. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this woman's going to steal every scene she's in. I'm going to have to kick her ass. <laughs> And she was seventy-five.
2: And yeah. Then I saw, uh, at, when that movie came out, that some black guy came up to you and. Yeah, this, yeah. I was walking
3: yeah. with my dad on. Uh, we were going to, uh, the Chinese restaurant Shun Lee on sixty fifth Street. I think still there. Meet my mom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lousy service the last time. I was <laughs> <on>. <laughs>
0: Just- <laughs> Sorry, Shun. Pass it every
3: day. You blew it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was going to meet my mom, and I walking with my dad, and. Uh, A middle-aged black guy, probably 50 years old, 55, stopped and said, are you the pickle man? And I said, well, I I play a pickle man and not really. He said, no, no, I just want to make sure it's you. And he said, I really love that movie. It was fantastic. And I just want to tell you, my my grandmother was exactly the same. I said, oh, thanks a lot. That's very sweet. And he went on his way. And my father was a very, very progressive guy, was absolutely fascinated that this black man identified with that Jewish woman and could recognize it. And I said, Dad, people don't, they're in the story. They don't see. You know, once the movie starts, color goes, religion goes, sex goes, everything goes. You're in the story. I mean, look, there are plenty of idiots out there who won't go to see a movie with anybody in it. But it 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 was a wonderful reminder, again, that you're part of something that's beyond your vanity. People pay a lot of money. I don't mean millions. I mean, you know, 20 bucks to somebody is a lot of money. To be taken somewhere, to be transported somewhere, that's a responsibility, and that's why you've got to do your best work. And those kinds of anecdotes remind me anyway that the audience is vast. And, of course, today with the Internet and with cable, you know, I'm working right now. Somebody's watching me act. And that's pretty unbelievable.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Yeah.
3: What, were you getting
1: propositions from women or people wanting to fix you up? Oh, their, crossing Delancey because the, oh my god, they love the pickle man.
3: Oh, I couldn't. I could
1: have. Could have dined out. I could have
3: humped that. my way from the Hudson to the <laughs> Pacific Ocean, but I was very responsible.
2: Uh, yeah. And I heard women also wanted to set you up with their daughters.
3: Uh, I met I, every age. Uh, I, I met grandmothers. I met mothers. <laughs> I met younger sisters, met uh, single sisters. It was, uh, who knew? I was a Jewish icon.
1: (laughs) Can I ask you a couple of quick questions from listeners? Peter, this is Grill the Guest. Uh, Jason Grissom, uh, love Peter Riegert. Any memories of Barbarians at the Gate with the great James Garner?
3: Uh, I loved working with James Garner. Again, another wonderful cast. What I loved about James, first of all, another... Simpatico guy. I mean, just.
1: Boy, we wish we could have had him here.
3: Oh, uh, what a. What a. What a. He just oozed empathy. Sweet, great guy. And he. The first re- table read uh, was supposed to start at like 10 o'clock. And people were meandering in, and we didn't get to the table read till around 10.30. And James Garner said, rehearsal was at 10 I was here at 9 30 when they say t- and it was fantastic because he was letting this cast know and everybody else the writers the crew the whole thing this is a profession and I'm getting my ass here on time and so are you but he wasn't hostile he wasn't angry it was nice and simple and then it was just a hell of a lot of fun playing off of him that was great
1: another legend and that you got to work with.
3: Well, again, you you just never know where you're going to run into somebody fascinating.
1: This is a guy you both worked with. What was it like working on the film America-Thon with John Ritter?
3: John was as funny and wonderful as you can imagine. The movie, I, I believe I made a, an acting mistake. I made a choice in the character.
1: And I... For those people that don't remember it, it's about the America runs out of money. Right. It's based ne- on a Firesign Theater right. sketch. Phil, Phil Proctor. Yeah. Phil, yeah.
3: And uh,
1: Procter and Bergman. Proctor
3: and Bergman. That's right. And the story is America has been borrowing money, and the the credit has come due, and the person who owns the chit is the an American Indian chief played by Chief, chief Dan George. George of all people, <laughs> <laughs> and every America was out of oil. Everybody was living in their cars, and they were all wearing jogging suits. It was rather, it was pretty funny. But I, my, I chose the the character should have been more uh, hostile. I I was too passive. But it was an interesting experience to see a mistake because you can learn from a mistake. But John was great. Harvey Cormer was Korman. unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. And it was filled with the most insane people. Fred I Willard's in it. Fred yeah. Willard is great in it. Cast. Um, George Carlin. George, that's right.
1: Yeah.
3: It was loaded with strange cameos. It was fantastic.
2: How, how many? And it
3: closed on page four.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many times do you watch yourself?
3: Very rarely, very yeah. rarely, yeah. Most of the time it's going to be – I saw Animal House for the first time all the way through at some event in San Francisco at uh, uh, something Quest. I'm forgetting the name of it. Uh, Sketchfest? Something like that. Anyway.
1: You had never seen it all the way through?
3: Not in years. Not in 30 years. And I sat there and just marveled at everybody's performances. It was really fantastic.
2: So, but you, generally, not really. Generally, you avoid watching yourself.
3: It's not fun to watch how young you once were.
2: <laughs> oh, oh yes, yes. And and it's also scary when you go, oh shit, this was like a year ago, and look how yeah. much better I look. Yeah,
3: yeah, there. yeah. No, I think I think the uh, sometimes I can now look and see. Okay, that's not bad. That was pretty good. That was interesting. Because I'm looking at it from my memory of where I thought I was creatively as an actor, technique-wise. And, uh, you know, the movies are the only place where you, or the TV is the only place that you have a record of the work. I can't, you know, I can only remember theater.
1: What's the percentage of, uh, hey, I was pretty good in that versus I wish I'd made a different choice?
3: Actually, most of it was, uh, that's pretty good. Good for you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Good for you. We talked we talk when we met at Chiller, and I yeah. talked about shock to the system, yeah. which is another thing I like you in. Michael Caine. Yeah.
3: Michael Caine. Oh my God, Michael Caine. Now, that guy has met everybody, been everywhere, and can tell stories forever. I asked him, he said to me one day, I came in, you know, it was after the weekend. This is a terrible Michael Caine impression. But he said, uh, <laughs> "He said, uh, how was your weekend? I said, oh, it was, it was very good. He said, yeah. Oh, was pretty good, too. What's on the table for you? I said, I'm sorry? He said, acting-wise, what's on the table for you? What's coming up? You're a good actor. You must get offers all the time. I said, no, nothing really.' He said, come on, don't be coy. You can tell me. <laughs> I said, well, I was offered this horror movie. He said, well, oh, you should do it. He said, well, I said... I'm thinking about it. He said, don't think about it. Do it. It's a horror movie. They won't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) He made a few of those. (laughs)
1: That's why he was
3: such a wise, uh, is such a wise guy. (laughs) That is a good story. I said, how did you, I I said, are you Jewish? He said, no, I'm not Jewish. Why do you think I'm Jewish? I said, my family thinks you're Jewish. Why why would they think I'm Jewish? I'm I'm from, I'm from the East End and I'm Cockney from London. I said, well, your name is, is Morris. He said, no, no, I'm not not Jewish, Morris. I'm English, Morris. Maurice, M-A-U-R-I-C-E. But we pronounce it Morris. I said, oh, so you're not Jewish. He said, no, I know it's going to be a disappointment to your family, but I'm not Jewish. (laughs) So I said, well, how did you become Michael Kane?" He said, well, uh, I promised my agent, Dennis, who kept wanting me to change my name because he thought Morris Micklewhite was too big on the marquee. And I said, okay, when I, become a, when I get my first movie, I'll, I'll change my name. So uh, I was in Piccadilly, Cir- uh, Piccadilly Circus, and I called Dennis to find out if I had any auditions. And he, I called him up, and he said, uh, okay, you've got to change your name. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, well, you got that movie. I said, what movie? He said, you got the movie Zulu. Zulu? What the hell is Zulu? He said, it's the movie about the Zulus, and you got the part. So now you got to change your name. So what's it going to be? So he says, uh, Michael says, so I said, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Michael, we'll change my name to Michael. And Dennis said, you idiot, Michael Micklewhite's just as long as Morris Micklewhite. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Micklewhite we've got to change. And I was in Piccadilly Circus and I looked to my left and there was playing the Kane Mutiny with Humphrey Bogart. I thought, that's brilliant. Michael Kane. Michael Caine, and I say to Dennis, Michael Caine. And Dennis says, that's great. That works. Michael Caine, I could see that on the marquee. And I hung up the phone. And I was very proud of myself. And I looked to the right, and I thought, it's a good thing I didn't look in that direction, or I'd be Michael 101 Dalmatians. That's <laughs> funny. I didn't know that's where he got Michael Caine. That's what, he, the told Kane
1: yeah. that's, that's that's what he told me. Yeah. the Caine Mutiny. That's great. That's what he me. That's great stuff.
3: Oh, he had endless, endless stories. Brilliant guy. As, and again, like I said, worked with everybody.
1: You have. Yeah, he, no, he not me, you, him. I'm yeah. looking at some of the people you've worked with, though. We mentioned it. Donald Sutherland, Kirk Donald. Douglas, uh, uh, Donna Meachie.
3: Donna Meachie. That was great fun.
1: Paul Schofield, cool. uh, James Garner. What about Jack Warden, another guy you both worked with? I for? love Jack
3: Warden. I thought I think Jack Warden is a, was an amazing actor. Another incredible guy. You pa- worked with him? Yeah. yeah. I just thought he
2: was Passed wonderful. away, you yeah, did with yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah. Bob
1: Hoskins. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Passed away. The amount of movies... Jack Warden was in. Was like a hundred or something. It was yeah. ridiculous.
1: We could do whole episodes on Jack Warden.
3: He's, you know, i talk talking comes about famous people and who's a star and who's not a star. When I was doing Local Hero, I had a day off and I'm wandering a small town in the, in the highlands of Scotland. Maybe it's one street and there's 20 stores on each side. I mean, you know, a bakery and a plumber and an electrician and a laundry. And I'm by myself, wandering up and down, having a great time. And I see Burt Lancaster walking on the other side of the street with his girlfriend. I think it was his girlfriend. And as he's walking down the street, people are recognizing him from the shops. And they would come out, and they would yell at him their favorite movie. And you'd hear, Crimson Pirate, fantastic. (laughs) Sweet smell of success. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, I love that one. And on and on and on. And all I kept thinking was, that's a movie star. We're That's in cool. nowheresville. We're literally in nowhere. Maybe there's 200 people in this town, and they all knew who Burt Lancaster was. That was pretty cool.
1: Fantastic. Directed by a Scotsman, by the way, a sweet smell of success. Ah, uh, yes, Anne McKendrick. McKendrick.
3: Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't did take this, a bite
3: out of me, Sydney, you're a cookie full of awesome. Uh,
1: did this come from, uh, from Peter's girlfriend, this note? Oh, so, uh, yeah, Is our Cornelia photographer, David, Cornelia's here. Hi, Cornelia. And our d- photographer David Simon wanted to ask you about doing the nerd. I did with the Mark nerd Hamill.
3: with Mark Hamill and Robert Joy, and we were on and another wonderful cast. We were on Broadway, 1988, at the old—I uh, guess it's, it, it was called the Little Theater. It was the Helen Hayes Theater. It's where Dick Clark did American Bandstand. Mm-hmm. I think it seated about 500 people. One of the funniest plays I've uh, ever been in. Hysterical. Hysterical Larry Shue Larry Shue Yeah He had passed away Tragically In a a plane accident And uh, I had uh, Hirschfeld Had done a drawing Of me In the In the times And his sister Bought the Hirschfeld For me And gave it to me As a gift That was very sweet
1: I want to tell people to our listeners, not only if you haven't seen Local Hero, shame on you, to our listeners, please <laughs> no shame, see Local no Hero. We're crossing Delancey, too, but I also want to tell people to see your movie, King of the Corner.
3: King of the Corner, I think you can get it on, uh, I guess it's not, you know, wherever you can download movies. You but...
1: could probably find it on Amazon or one of yeah, those. Yeah, I think and, so. Yeah. And Eli Wallach, as we talked about, Rita Moreno's in it, yeah. uh, Elizabella Rossellini. Nice and, cast. And your directorial feature debut.
2: Yeah, yeah. And nice We film. shot it
3: in 20 days. It was yeah. exhausting.
2: You know, this, this this shows how my mind operates in a scary way. When- I never noticed. <laughs> when you just said now that you uh, there was a Hirschfeld drawing yeah. of you, I swear to God, I started looking at your hair, seeing if I could find the name Beninas. Nina. <laughs> Gilbert, you're losing
3: it. No, no, no. <laughs> That is absolutely one of the greatest things I've ever heard. <laughs> How many Ninas do you see? <laughs> the status of, you know, 76 Ninas. I think I had one.
1: You tell us quickly about When You Wish Upon a Weinstein, the Family Guy episode. Uh,
3: I got a call <laughs> to, oh, that to was do
1: hysterical. The, the
3: voiceover to play yeah. a rabbi in this TV show. I just said uh, this animated TV Television. Gilbert
1: show. was on it. He played a horse. You
3: played a yes. horse. <laughs> well, I I'd never heard of uh, Seth McFarlane. I'd never really heard of the show, and uh, I, my memory just was this: it was Seth who came out and said hello. Who was a, I learned was a big Animal House fan, and uh, uh, I don't remember much about it other than doing the job and realizing, oh my God, I'm going to offend every Jew walking on this, <laughs> on this planet. But who better than me? And uh, uh, I I think, if memory serves, it was never aired because it was so offensive. Because people took it to be so anti-Semitic. It
1: became uh, an infamous episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: But uh, years later, uh, he hired me to be in a TV show called Dads that I did with uh, Martin Mull and so oh, it's green, green. Yeah, and yeah. Giovanni Rabisi. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Brenda Song. It was an amazing. Amazing group of people.
2: What else do you want to ask but this man, Gil? This which which was the Family Guy where he sings "I Need a Jew." That might have been it. I yeah, think that might be. The I think same that, same that was episode. it. That's yeah, why to, he hires the Rabbi. To the melody of uh, "When You Wish Upon a Star." He's singing, I need a Jew.
3: The show is still running. It can't and, be. I don't know.
2: And I remember there's one line in particular that cracked me up where he says, Peter says to his wife, he goes, this is show and show. He's a Jew. <laughs> and the wife goes, oh, that's so exotic. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like
1: that sounds like the scene. You've done some of the best television shows of the last twenty years, by the way. Damages, I, I've, I've Good Wife, through a couple of them, Sopranos. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Sopranos, that was fun. Uh, James Gandolfini, I can't say enough of. He was an amazing
2: guy. And Kimmy Schmidt, you're very Kimmy, funny. Yes, everybody Carol says Kane. James Gandolfini was one of the nicest people.
3: I would say uh, he stood out not just for his talent. But he understood his responsibility as the star of that show. He had everybody's back. Extraordinary. Very powerful actor to work with. And it was fun to play with him. I mean, I put him in the same category as all those people you've mentioned. Men and women who you just come to play. And like, you know, after the initial, oh, it's so great to meet you and blah, blah, blah. Once you get down to it, it's it's fantastic he was now that i said to him one night after we finished the the scene where he beats me with a belt you know right. i don't know if mm-hmm. you remember that scene yeah sure and i uh i asked the guys who handle the props i said what's the could you show me the belt that jimmy's going to hit me with and i they showed it to me i said could could you hit me so they hit me on the on my back and i really didn't feel anything i said harder 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 this the props guy must have hit me 10 times and i didn't feel anything i said he said, it's styrofoam. You're not going to feel a thing. So I went to Gandolfini and I said, listen, I think you can really go to town on me. This belt is made of styrofoam. And I had the properties guy hit me and I didn't feel anything. And he looked at me like I was some mad method actor or something. <laughs> so he went over and had the properties guy hit him with the belt. And once he was satisfied, um, we, did, we did the scene and he was able to put all that anger into the physicalness of hitting me with the belt. And, you know, as the night ended, it was three in the morning or something, and he was waiting for his car, and I just said, do you know what the word mensch is? And he said, I- I've heard of that word. I think I know that word. I said, well, you're a mensch. It's been a real pleasure. And we'd see each other periodically. And when he died, <clears throat> the, which, of course, was a shock to everybody. I hadn't seen him in a while I'd call him a couple of times to see if he wanted to be in a film that I was working on or trying to write and direct. Anyway, some months passed, and they were going to have a memorial, and I didn't know when the memorial was going to be. And I just happened to be up early and was watching some ridiculous news show in the morning, and they announced that at St. John the Divine up on 110th Street, the the, uh, memorial for Gandolfini was happening. And I ran in the shower, hopped in a taxi, got up there, Everybody was already inside and on the barricades were all the you know, the cops who were protecting all the celebrities that were there and the people in general and the mourners and the family. And thank God they recognized me because they just let me right through and I got to see the whole memorial, which I was proud to be part of. But I it was because of one, my respect for who he was, but because of what he gave me personally that he he reached out to make sure that I was comfortable. That's a rare quality.
1: That's nice. Yeah,
3: yeah, very special.
1: We had Dominic here too, and he sang for Dominic,
3: us. Dominic, another madman. Yeah, he a, was in, in in my movie too. I know too. he played the funeral director. Yeah,
1: he was here. He sang, "Brother, can you spare a dime for ah. us?" I'm going to send you the clip. Oh, please and do. It'll, yeah. it'll break your heart.
3: Yeah, he's got stories, Dominic.
1: Yeah, what a great guy.
3: Yeah. Well, again, that goes to what you know. This whole program, as you say, is about one one person leads to another person leads. To, you could. Spend your life listening to these stories. It's like being in a shtetl hearing from the old.
1: <laughs> That's why we like doing this. It's a show business.
3: uncle, what was this like when the when the when the Cossacks were last here 15 years ago? Oh, don't talk about Cossacks. Uh,
2: well, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to a man who kissed Humphrey Bogart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we hate to wrap this up. We have another guest. We on, you on got some nerves? I know. You know Carl Gottlieb? He wrote Jaws.
2: I, Carl
3: and I go back at least 50 years ago. Do you? Yeah, yeah our paths have crossed.
1: He's coming on next. So. Is, he, is he here now? No, he's going to be on Skype. Oh, and, and from, hi, Carl. From, from L.A., not yet. But uh, thanks, man. You make this easy.
3: Hey, we- you guys made it easy. What a pleasure you want my good side or my bad
2: side? We've been talking to Peter Riegerd. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Do you want the talented facade or the untalented
2: facade? We got the
1: pickle man, Gil. He's here. Yes.
3: Call me Gherkin. And
1: and Boone. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. You're
3: a mensch, too. Thank you very much. My pleasure, guys.